What is eternal life? How do you understand it? How do you imagine it? We're full of all sorts of ideas of what eternal life might be like. And yet, the scriptures are clear. Eternal life centers on Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. The November issue of the Lutheran Witness explains some of these misconceptions about eternal life and what the scriptures say. So to learn more, pick up your copy of the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, teaching you to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. There's a myth, and it's common among Christians, that the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about eternal life. Now, in one sense, that myth may have a little bit of basis. We don't get a detailed explanation of what life for eternity will be like, but there's a lot we are told in Holy Scripture about life after death, and for the Christian, it's joys. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're going to be talking about 17th century Lutheran theologian Johann Gerhardt and what he discovered in his scriptural study on eternal life. Dr. Ben Mays joins us. He's chairman and associate professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, general co-editor of Johann Gerhardt's Theological Commonplaces, and author of a column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Meditating on Eternal Life with Johann Gerhardt. Ben, welcome back. Always great to be with you. Why has so little been written about the joys of eternal life? Well, among Lutherans, not much has been written, and I think that might be because of a transition of Lutherans from speaking mainly German, but also a lot of Latin, to only speaking German, to now really just speaking English, at least in this country. And that has led to a point where we have some amnesia, and we don't know some of the great theological resources that we actually have in our own past. But I would not say that heaven or eternal life has not been written about at all. In fact, it's often written about and very poorly. I was just looking at Amazon.com today, just looking, I've just put in eternal life just to see what would come up. One of the top ones was, was by John Shelby Spong, and another one was basically saying the same thing, where they affirm eternal life, but it's in the sense of pantheism and a kind of a personal persistence after death in God that is to say the universe. Terrible, very terrible stuff. So then I thought, I'll go and take a look at what christianbook.com has to say and and put in eternal life and put in heaven. You put in heaven, and mostly what you get are books about near-death experiences or people who have had new revelations. Now and then you'll get somebody who's trying to say, this is what scripture says about heaven. But most of the books are not actually saying that. So it's it's almost as if Christians and non-Christians are really fascinated with the idea of eternal life or of heaven, but they just don't know where to find the right answers, and they're looking in all the wrong places. They're certainly not looking to what Scripture says about it. Who was Johann Gerhard? Johann Gerhard had a lot to write about eternal life and about a lot of other things. He was a Lutheran theologian who lived about 100 years after Martin Luther, so was a kid when the formula of Concord was brand new. So he was born in 1582 and was doing—he was a pastor and a superintendent of churches for quite a while and then was a professor of theology at Lutheran University of Jena, teaching future pastors there, and died then in 1637. 
And among the many things that he did, he wrote, especially systematic theology is what we would call it, but the the series that he wrote was called The Theological Commonplaces. And CPH, Concordia Publishing House, has been publishing this in English since about 2006, and we continue to put out one volume a year. And so this year we're, we're very pleased to be able to put out the volume on eternal life. So he's, a, he's really a wonderful, insightful, very detailed kind of theologian, but also one who is very warm with regard to his piety, his prayer life, and has a lot of devotional writings as well. And you see both sides of that whenever he's talking about eternal life. Why is eternal life joyful? Why is that kind of the characteristic? You definitely see eternal life being set forth and with all of its great joys. I mean, first of all, it's the way that Scripture reveals it. It is the opposite of eternal death, so it's the opposite of this eternal dying in hell. So there's just the way that it's described, it is set forth as joyful. But why is it joyful? And this has to do with the fact that God is there in a gracious way with his his favor and his presence in such a way that he who is the source of joy and love and all good things is sharing his joy and love and all good things with those who are his elect, those who have believed on him in this life and now get to see him face to face. So it's really the gracious presence of God that makes eternal life so joyful. How do many think about eternal life, you say, in a self-centered way? I, I think this is the case. And think about it for yourself. You know, the way that a lot of people think about heaven or eternal life is they think about themselves having a good time. And that's really almost as far as it gets. Sometimes it's a pretty shallow and not a very interesting idea of heaven. They think of clouds and harps and halos and it sounds kind of boring to me. Or they might think of it in... Uh, you know, just whatever it is in life that they like. Maybe they like to go golfing, and so they think, well, that's what I like, so that's what I must be doing in heaven. Almost all of these ways of going about it, whether you're just thinking about, oh, how wonderful I will feel in heaven, or you're thinking about how much I like to do certain activities and hobbies here on earth, and so I'm going to extrapolate from that, despite what Scripture may say. I'll just forget about what Scripture says, but I'll extrapolate from what I like in this life, and I'll say, I can't imagine myself being happy without being able to play golf or ride my bike or play my trombone. I just can't imagine it. And so heaven must have that. But this is missing the whole point of what the real source of our joy is, and it really is a self-centered way of thinking about joy and thinking about heaven, thinking about eternal life. Instead, what we ought to be doing is seeking joy where joy is truly to be found. And that way that it's found is actually in God, who is our creator, who created us to be eternally happy, but not to be eternally happy on our own, but to be eternally happy in fellowship with him, receiving his love, receiving his joys, and expressing our joy, expressing our happiness in praise to him forever and ever. Amen. And that really is a much different kind of way of thinking of eternal life. It is, one includes all the joys that there could possibly be, but both of them kind of include these kinds of manners of thinking about joy, but one of them excludes the most important thing, and that is God. How is eternal life found then only in Christ? I make the point in the Lutheran Witness article that 
eternal life has to be seen as found in Christ and indeed as Trinitarian, or else it's not really the true eternal life. Remember back to the different kinds of books that are on the market. For example, that eternal life has something to do with my being unified with the universe and the universe is God or somehow God and the universe are the same thing. And they don't really see that God is the creator of heaven and earth, is different from heaven and earth, and that eternal life is all about being in fellowship with him. So the way that eternal life really works is that it comes from God. It is given to us sinners who have been redeemed by Christ and who have received forgiveness through faith alone. And it is then sealed to us and applied to us through the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit in the means of grace. And the Holy Spirit takes us and brings us to Christ. And in Christ, we are in his church We're in the church militant here on earth, in the the struggling body of Christ, fighting against our our sinful nature, the fallenness of the world, and against the devil's temptations. And then finally, at death, we're taken into the church triumphant. In each case, we're part of the body of Christ, and it's only as part of the body of Christ that we get to enjoy eternal life. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we are in him through faith and through his gospel and through holy baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we receive these things through faith and we die in that faith, then we are in Christ. And we have been in Christ the whole time through his gifts that he has given us. And these gifts then keep us with him and bring us into eternal life. He says in John chapter 6, he who eats my flesh has life in him and he will live forever. And this is definitely given to us through all of the means of grace which we receive through faith, and this is what then gives us that eternal life, which we then get to enjoy forever. Talk about how eternal life will exceed any of our present expectations. It's really kind of interesting. There's so many aspects that could be talked about with regard to eternal life that we often just don't think about. I'm just looking here at the table of contents for Johann Gerhardt, and he's talking about all the different aspects of eternal life. And a lot of times, again, when we think about eternal life or heaven, we think about not having any pain, we've got a new body, feeling pretty good, and we get to do some fun stuff. The way that he talks about it is in so many different aspects. He talks about it, for example, There are these positive goods that we have, and there are these privative goods, the privative goods, things that we don't have to suffer from anymore. We have freedom from our sin. We have freedom from sicknesses. We have freedom from sorrow. And then all of these positive goods as well are listed, and he gets into great detail about this. Probably the main positive good is that we get to see God face to face. And this seeing God is really the the source of our joy, that we see him as he is, something that's not really possible in this life. Among those, we also enjoy the fellowship with other blessed people, other people in, in that heavenly salvation. We get to glorify God. We have the perfect divine image restored to us. And in that perfect divine image, we have perfect knowledge of God, perfect holiness of our will. We have our feelings, our emotions are filled with joy, but are also in correspondence with what our minds know to be right. And 
it goes on and on. We Our bodies are, are free of all pains. We have also, as Christ's body, had special abilities that it didn't have before his resurrection, so ours will also. We will be beautiful. It goes on and on. We'll have fellowship with the angels. We'll have great conversations. There's so many different aspects that he talks about in such great detail that it would take a long time to go through all of them. But perhaps that's enough. A lot of times we have ideas about what eternal life might entail. And when we look to what Scripture says, sometimes that corrects us. And I think perhaps the thing to keep in mind is what St. Paul says about how we will, now we see in a glass darkly or in a mirror darkly, but then we shall see him face to face. So whatever we know now is partial. It is true what we know from the Word of God but what we're going to see and how we will see God, not simply to believe in him, but we will see him, that's going to far explode and go way beyond anything that we can possibly imagine now. Dr. Ben Mays is our guest. We're talking about 17th century Lutheran theologian Johann Gerhardt on eternal life. And when will you turn? What did Gerhardt discover in Scripture about the beatific vision? Expert guests. Expansive topics. Extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. What can we learn from our Lutheran forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled For Such a Time as This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Ben Mays is our guest. We're talking with him about 17th century Lutheran theologian Johann Gerhardt on eternal life. In about 15 minutes, we're going to be spending some time with Dr. Stephen Parks, our series Responding to Roman Catholic Proof Text. We'll talk about sanctifying grace. So what did Gerhardt find in Scripture about the beatific vision? The beatific vision is really an interesting topic. It comes up in one of our hymns, and it well, let me just give you some Scripture passages that talk about this. A lot of times there are these, these passages that we just kind of fly right by and we don't really think too much about them. But to give you an example of some of the the scripture verses that talk about this, first remember this, that John 1, no one has ever seen God. Okay, No one has ever seen God. He who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. That is to say, Jesus Christ has made God known to us. But we have these promises. Job 19, 26, in my flesh I shall see God. Psalm 1611, in your face is fullness of joy. That is to say, when we see his face, we will have fullness of joy. Psalm 1715, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Psalm 369, in your light, we shall see the light. There's a lot of these. Psalm 42.2, when will it be that I see the face of God? Isaiah 6618, they will come and see my glory. Matthew 5, 8, which we just had for All Saints Day. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
John 14:21, I shall reveal myself to him. John 17:24, that they may see the splendor that you gave me. 1 Corinthians 13:12, for now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know as I am known. So the beatific vision, beatific there, what that means is this is a classic theological term meaning having to do with beatitude or blessedness. That is to say this heavenly, supernal, eternal happiness, this happiness that belongs to the saved people of God. It's that kind of a vision. So people have had glimpses of God through various theophanies, that is to say manifestations of God in the Old Testament. They saw God's Son in the flesh, which is the clearest that he has been seen. But then when we are in eternal life, we will see him in his divinity as he is. And this is the the rather remarkable thing that we get to see. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, I think, had a foretaste of this. When they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw the Lord Jesus gleaming white, like lightning whiter than a launderer can get any clothes. And it was amazing to them, struck them so full of awe, in fact, cast them down and they were trembling. When we are in in eternal life, it's that sort of vision that we will have, except it won't knock us down because of trembling and fear because of our sins, because at that point we will be perfect and we'll be able to take that in, we'll be able to enjoy this wonderful sight, the best sight that we've ever seen. And this sight of seeing God like that is going to fill our hearts and our minds with exceeding joy that goes beyond anything that can be described. What did Gerhardt discover in Scripture about degrees of glory? Well, the degrees of glory is a, is a topic that we don't often talk about. And this is because we focus very clearly on what Scripture says about how our salvation is not by works. It is simply God's gift and is received through faith alone, presented to us in the means of grace and received when we receive these in faith. But nevertheless, Scripture also says in various spots that in heaven there will be degrees of glory. St. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about there's a difference among the moon and the various stars, how they differ in glory, so it will also be in the resurrection of the dead. Now, the way that this works out and the way that we see from other passages that talk about varying rewards given for those who have served the Lord in this life is that we see that salvation itself is a free gift not given on account of any of our works. But for those who have faithfully served the Lord and have suffered for him, they will indeed receive extra rewards in eternal life. Not the reward of eternal life, but rewards in eternal life. Now, once we're in eternal life, it's kind of difficult for us to imagine how even being at the lowest place at the table would be a bad thing. And in fact, it would not be. And so being at the lowest place in the table sounds pretty good, and it will be. But just as the Lord tells the parables of the wedding feast or of being invited to a banquet, and there are different places at the table, there's, there's a higher place of glory. So also, that's how it will be in eternal life. James and John asked Jesus if they could sit at his right hand and at his left in his kingdom. And Jesus did not say, it's going to be democratic, guys. We're all going to be the same. He said, this is not for you. This has been reserved for other people, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. So that's the point, 
is that there will be these degrees of glory. We will not be upset by our place. We will rejoice in our place. We will rejoice that there are people ahead of us. I'm looking forward to seeing who those glorious martyrs and saints are going to be, because I think a lot of times they're going to be people that nobody's ever heard of. We talk about various saints and and apostles and martyrs and things of, of this sort, especially in the Lutheran Church, but there's going to be all kinds of people we don't even know about that maybe we even knew, but we didn't know how much they had to suffer or how much good they've done for the Lord and for his kingdom. And we're going to be surprised when we get there, and we're going to rejoice that they are being honored for what they have done and for what they have suffered. Why did Gerhardt himself write at length on eternal life? There is a lot to say about eternal life, and it is something that a lot of Christians want to know about. This isn't the only topic that Gerhardt wrote a lot about. His theological commonplaces are full of material, replete with Scripture and with conversations of taking into account what the church fathers have said, what the medieval theologians have said, and what Gerhardt's contemporaries were saying, some of which he approved and some of which he had to correct. So because so much has been written and because Scripture really says so much about it, Gerhardt intends and tries and succeeds at giving a very full account of what eternal life is, what we have to look forward to, And the other thing that he does with this, which is really great, is he brings in so much of the joy, just the exuberance of various church fathers as they are thinking about eternal life and meditating on it. So Gerhardt does not just want to instruct in some kind of a dry, pedantic style about what heaven is and and all of its attributes, but he's also sharing those prayers and that excitement that Christians of all ages have had as they are thinking about the rewards that the Lord is going to give to those who have trusted in him for their forgiveness and are looking for their eternal home with him. You mentioned early on, many Christians are intensely curious about eternal life. And it sounds as though there's quite a bit there. Why do you think the myth persists that scripture has little to say about it? It's amazing to me in that obviously one of the most popular books is Revelation, and people are always very interested in what Revelation says. But when Revelation is speaking about, uh, much of what Revelation talks about is what's going to happen at the end of the world, and that's something that we can understand a little bit better and more easily than eternal life itself. And so my guess is that because eternal life just goes so far beyond what we can even imagine, both in terms of how great it will be, as well as how it will just be somewhat other than our experience in this fallen world here, not just somewhat other, quite other. Perhaps that's what makes it difficult to say a lot. And perhaps Johann Gerhardt writes more than anybody else really could legitimately write. I'm not sure about that. Maybe others could legitimately write more. But so much of what we see out there at Christian bookstores or just in regular bookstores dealing with heaven or with eternal life, it's not really saying anything that's reliable. And there are people that have a lot to say, but they don't have a whole lot that's reliable to say about it. So I'm not sure if that's really a good answer to your question. It is more of a reflection on the difficulty of the topic because it does 
so far surpass what we can experience in this life. On the other hand, because God through his prophets and apostles has revealed certain definite things about what is promised for us, then we can indeed, and we should, and we must confess this thing that God has promised to us. And so that's what we're doing when we write about this. And it's it's very useful to our people also to be able to have this before them, to be able to ponder and think about the great promises that God has made to us and, and what we have to look forward to. It makes it all worth it. You had mentioned that when you Googled the subject, you came up, even among Christian publishers, mostly with stories of people who were claiming something like a near-death experience or a visit to heaven. And I'm curious, what's the danger of these kinds of fanciful accounts of eternal life? Well, first of all, they could be just completely wrong. So a lot of times my understanding is that people have some sort of a a glimpse of, of light and of great calm and peace, and they might even see angels or see think that they see God or might see Jesus. And maybe they do, but maybe they don't. And in any case, even if these are legitimate, and if God has revealed something to them, he has not at all indicated that he wants all of us to be paying attention to that. What he wants us to pay attention to is his word in the Holy Scriptures, which he has given to us and said, pay attention to that. So hear him is what he said from heaven when he when the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized. Hear him. So that's what we should be doing. Now, that's one possibility. Maybe God gave them some revelations, but you know what? Maybe he didn't. And maybe what is happening is that people are having these near-death experiences. Maybe some of them don't believe in Jesus at all. They don't believe in our God. They don't believe in the triune God, and they're still having a near-death experience that's very comforting to them. That would be a great confirmation that it's not really necessary to believe in Christ in order to have salvation, and that would be a diabolic lie. That would be a deception that's being set forth by the devil. So all of these kinds of so-called revelations, if they're genuine, then they would lead a person to the scriptures and to the church. That is to say, the place where the means of grace are given out, the gospel and the sacraments are given out in accordance with God's word. That's where a true revelation would lead. And a false revelation would lead a person away from those things. And so we can easily evaluate these. If a a so-called revelation is leading a person to really pay attention to what God's word says about this, well, okay, then that's probably true. If somebody says that she saw a vision of the Lord Jesus because she used to be a Muslim and she had a vision of the Lord Jesus saying, you need to find me in my church and receive me in the Holy Gospel and have your sins forgiven by baptism. I could accept that as being a true revelation because it's leading her to where the Lord has promised to be found. But if it's giving her some other message, telling her some other thing that would conflict with what the Holy Scriptures have revealed for our salvation, then we know that it's false. So my worry is that the ones that are claiming to be Christian, claiming to have had these great experiences, people are putting their trust in these near-death experiences or in these visions and revelations instead of where God really wants us to put our trust, which is in the word of the prophets and the apostles, and specifically in what Jesus says. It strikes me that the Apostle Paul, who on his own behalf, he won't even claim it for himself, but he's quite obviously the recipient of this beatific vision while still alive. He says he's heard and saw things there that 
it is not permitted for man to utter. That's a great insight, and that's a great example of how reticent he is to go beyond what the Lord has allowed him to say. The thing that's amazing to me about the revelation of St. John is that he's given a specific command and instruction to write most of the things that he sees, but there are some things that he's commanded not to. And unless you have a specific command, even if you have a revelation, and you know you have to allow me the possibility of doubting that you've had a real revelation, but even if you've have had a real revelation, unless you've got a specific command of God to declare it to somebody else, you better just keep it to yourself. But what we do have the command to share with others is what he has revealed in his holy scriptures, what he has revealed to the prophets and the apostles. But you're right, that reticence of St. Paul to share this vision that he had, I think that's a, a great example for us. Tell us about this new translation, Johann Gerhard on Eternal Life. Well, it's brand new. I just got my copy in the mail today, so it's it's gone out to subscribers. This is one in a long line of a series called The Theological Commonplaces, written between 1610 and 1625. And this is on eternal life. It is the last volume in his section on the last things. And so with this volume and with the other volumes, we'll have five, I can't remember, five or six volumes that we'll have on the last things. So in English, this particular systematic theology book series is going to be the most extensive Lutheran theology that we have in the English language. And by far the most extensive Lutheran treatment of the last things, eschatology, that we have in the English language. So I'm really excited about it, and it has just come out, and it was translated by the sainted Richard Dinda, who translated most of the series, and edited by Joshua Hayes, pastor in Kansas, and by Heath Curtis, pastor in Warden, Illinois, with myself as the general editor. The thing that's really great about this, as I mentioned earlier, besides his painstaking attention to detail of what the scriptures say, he also brings in so much of the beautiful sayings of the church fathers and that excitement and exuberance for eternal life. One of the things that Dr. Dinda forgot to translate was at the very end, there are songs and verses on the blessedness of eternal life. And I'm going to turn to that and maybe leave you with that because it's a beautiful section. Songs and Verses on the Blessedness of Eternal Life. Boy, I don't have time to read all of this. I'm just going to read a little bit of Augustine or whoever the author is in his meditations. My dry heart has grown thirsty for the fountain of eternal life. My enclosed soul longs for the present confinement of the flesh to be undone. As an exile, it longs, seeks, strives after the enjoyment of its fatherland. When it mourns its subjection to trials and hardship, when it sins, it contemplates the glory which it lost. For the present evil sharpens the memory of the good that was lost. But who can express the greatness of the joy of peace on high, where the buildings are built with lively pearls, supernal homes shine with gold, and the dining halls beam bright? This edifice is made of the sun's precious gems, and the city street is paved with gold as pure as glass. There is no muck or filth, no pestilence is known. No horrid winter nor scorching summer ever raged there. The flower of perennial roses brings perpetual spring. The lilies glisten, the crocus reddens, balsam exudes forth. 
The meadows are verdant, the crops flourish, rivers of honey flow. The smell, moisture, and fragrance of plants is in the air, and fruits of the flowering groves hang fresh but never fall. The moon does not change her place, nor the sun, nor the course of the stars. The lamb is the unsetting light of the blessed city. Time and night cease for him, for he brings perpetual day. Yes, the saints, too, each glow bright as the sun, and rejoice together, having been crowned after their triumph march. And now safe, they count the troops of the enemy now laid low. So that is just a bit of some of the songs and verses on the blessedness of eternal life translated by Joshua Hayes. Very happy to include that at the end of this commonplace on eternal life. Find out more about this new resource, Johann Gerhard on Eternal Life, by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, or on the Talk on Demand archives page at issuesetc.org, Johann Gerhard on Eternal Life. Dr. Ben Mays is chairman and associate professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's general co-editor of Johann Gerhardt's Theological Commonplaces and author of a column for the Lutheran Witness titled Meditating on Eternal Life with Johann Gerhardt. Ben, thank you again. My pleasure. Dr. Stephen Parks joins us next. We're going to continue our series responding to Roman Catholic proof text today, Sanctifying Grace. What is eternal life? How do you understand it? How do you imagine it? We're full of all sorts of ideas of what eternal life might be like. And yet, the scriptures are clear. Eternal life centers on Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. The November issue of the Lutheran Witness explains some of these misconceptions about eternal life and what the scriptures say. So to learn more, pick up your copy of the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, teaching you to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Grace, Faith, Scripture, and Christ Alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C. The registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org.